you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I'm going to be reading today from Luke 22, um, from verses 39 to 46, from the ESB version. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jess. Well, good morning, City on a Hill. It is great to be with you. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name's Brenton. I'm one of the discipleship ministers here on staff. I get to lead some incredible teams of ministry, our men's ministry, our alpha ministry, and our pastoral care teams. Um, it was hot yesterday, right? Man, um, I just we just read about Jesus sweating with great drops of blood. I felt that yesterday. <laughs> it was a lot. Um, and I don't know if you've been keeping up with me, but the last time I was up here in front on this stage, um, I was talking about how my wife was expecting a newborn last November. And I am happy to say we have a beautiful new newborn, Margot Marie Jayatilika. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. She's a happy and healthy baby, happy and healthy mum, sleep-deprived parents. But we are so grateful for this bundle of joy. And if you're new to City on a Hill or if you're jumping back in with us, we're so grateful that you're here. We're in, as we've been talking about this morning, this four-week series on prayer. And like Nikki helpfully pointed out for us today, you know, we think about New Year's resolutions at this time of year, but we're hoping and praying that during this month, we might revive our heart with a passion and dependence on God in prayer this year. And so today, I want to look at one of the most significant prayers that Jesus prays in Scripture. It's a prayer that will help us see His humanity, and I hope that it'll be a prayer that will encourage us to see how raw and authentic our conversations can be with God when we enter into a time of prayer with Him. So we're going to be walking through this passage verse by verse. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to get it out, whether it's on your phone or in paper form. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. And we're going to look at three postures that Jesus assumes when he's in his conversation with God in this passage. And I hope that it will encourage us and give us some ways to think about how we can enter in with God in prayer. And those three ways are as simple as ESV. Expectation in prayer, submission in prayer, and victory in prayer. These are the three postures that Jesus assumes in this passage. So before we dive in, 
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, are so um, enamored that we get to be in your presence right here, right now. And I pray that wherever we are at in our prayer life with you, I pray that today we wouldn't feel intimidated, that we wouldn't feel like there is a barrier. That God, even now, as we're opening up your word, you're speaking to us. You're telling us things. You're speaking to our hurts and our pains, to our joys, to our victories. And so, God, be with us. Be with me today that I might be helpful in preaching your word to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're going to dive right in to our first point, expectation in prayer. Let's have a look at verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So there's a couple of things to notice in this beginning passage. First, we see that it was Jesus' custom to pray at the Mount of Olives. This picture of Jesus praying... Regularly is particularly helpful. It shows us that prayer was a part of his regular rhythm of his life, intentional moments of prayer. It shows how he had constant dependence on his father. It also signals to us that prayer isn't this one-time getaway-in-the-closet experience, but it's something that happens all throughout our day, something to build our life upon. This picture is also helpful in that it shows us that Jesus had a regular place to pray, uh, in other accounts of the gospel stories, um, they fine-tune the name of this place, the Mount of Olives, to call, they call it the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means olive press. So this place was more of a private garden that Jesus had access to, to pray by himself, and where he would take his disciples regularly. In fact, I have a picture of the Mount of Olives as it exists today. Uh, it was this place just east of the city of Jerusalem. And if you look at it, I think we have a picture of it, um, you can imagine that Jesus uh, praying in a spot like this. It's just outside of the city. It's far enough away to where he could have some solitude, but it's close enough to where he could actually see the city and he could envision the places and the people that he was praying for. Do you have a place like that? You might not have a rich uncle that owns a, an olive garden, um, but there might be a park down the road or a creek or a place by the river where you can just be quiet and get alone with God to meet with him. For me, at the moment, it looks like my kitchen table at about 6 a.m. every morning. It seems to be when it's the quietest, most peaceful time in our house. Um, now that we have three children, I've really started to appreciate how difficult it is to find moments like that. I don't know how my wife does it, to be honest. Margot is uh, constantly in need of her attention. She needs to be put to sleep, always needs to be fed. There was actually a day over Christmas break where Lauren was out sick, and I got a glimpse of what it looks like to have an all-consuming human being all over your time. Um, how do you have time to pray when that's happening? Uh, I remember that my time during in prayer, uh, looking after Margot, was literally wiping a dirty bottom and being reminded that Jesus has wiped away my sin. <laughs> that, was, that was my time in prayer. And for me, infants 
are a great reminder of what time in prayer can actually look like. They are constantly and totally dependent upon their parents. And in prayer, that's how our posture should be to God. I don't know what it looks like for you during your day, but for me, when I'm walking uh, to work or if I'm on the tram or if I'm thinking about something that I have to do that day, oftentimes I'll just offer that thought up to God so that all the way through the day I'm praying. Now, if we look back at this passage, it also says that the disciples followed him into the garden. And it's important to note that at this point of the story, we've actually lost a disciple. Um, we know from the narrative that the disciples have just finished having their last supper with Jesus. And Judas, one of his disciples, has been overtaken by Satan and he's gone away to betray Jesus. Now, at the end of Jesus' prayer in this garden, Judas leads religious leaders to the garden, his private spot, to arrest him. Now, how did Judas know that he would be there? Well, you can imagine that Jesus probably took Judas to that very spot often to pray. And Judas knew he would be there at that moment. That's a, that's a crazy kind of betrayal. But I think what's even crazier is that Jesus went to the place where, he, where Judas knew he would be. Why would Jesus go there? Why wouldn't he just go find a different hiding spot? Well, look at what he says to his disciples. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus totally could have avoided this betrayal. He was all-powerful. He knows what's about to happen. He knows that he has to go to the cross. But yet, he goes to the garden regardless. We'll see later that Jesus is dealing with his own temptation in this moment, but he chooses to be exactly where he knew he would be found. And it's in this moment he's actually teaching the disciples something. He's teaching them to expect temptation. Pray against temptation. And temptation is a hell of a thing, isn't it? Temptation is a foretaste of hell on earth. And it's always there, crouching at the door. You and I will always be tempted to do what we know is not right for us we'll always be tempted to think like Adam and Eve, that we know better than God. We'll always be tempted by the idols of money and sex and prestige and power. And we'll always be tempted to think that God isn't sufficient enough to overcome our fears. We'll always be tempted to flee from God in the midst of our struggles. So what are we supposed to do in moments like this? Well, I hope we'll do a few things. I hope that we'll go to our gospel communities or our, our small groups of people that, and share with how we're being tempted. Maybe there's a few friends, a really close friends that you trust, a brother or a sister in Christ that you can speak to about this. Maybe there are habits in your life that you know right now will lead you into temptation if you keep doing them. And you need to identify them and find ways to break them. Maybe there are things that you are doing right now that you know you just need to stop. But I hope that over and above all of those things that you might do when you're being tempted, that you would do what Jesus has called you to do, and that's pray. Notice how he doesn't say pray because you are being tempted. 
He actually says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus thinks this is such an important lesson. He actually says it twice in this passage. Expect temptation, he tells his disciples, and pray. He wants to see, he wants to teach his disciples to pray before they enter into temptation. For the disciples, it's this fear of knowing what is coming if Jesus leaves them. Jesus has told them he's about to go to a place and they don't know where he's going and they're fearing that. Jesus knows temptation is coming for them, so he pleads for them to pray. So what temptation is ahead of you that you could be praying about right now? I I love how Tim and Kathy Keller, we quote Tim Keller often, but I love how he and his wife describe the realization that they came to about the importance of prayer. Um, At the time they came to this realization, they were leading a church in New York, and it was right around the time of 9-11. And so they were witnessing what was happening to their city, and they uh, were also dealing with Kathy's Crohn's disease and Tim's diagnosis of thyroid cancer. And so Kathy approaches his husband, Tim, to pray with her every night, every night. It was something that they never had the discipline to do previously. And Kathy used this story to help illustrate the importance of prayer to her husband. And this is her story. It's what she said. She said, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to taking it some nights? No. It would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We just can't let it slip our minds. Imagine having a vision of prayer like this. Expectation in prayer is saying to yourself that you know sin and death is crouching at the door and you're trusting God to carry all of these burdens that you can't see yet. It's saying that you have a constant need and dependence on the power of God to rule and reign in your life. You expect that temptation is coming and it's constantly crouching at the door and you're realizing that without the power of God, I've got nothing to do to stop it. That is having expectation in prayer. And you might say, well, that's all well and good, but isn't that a sign of weakness in my faith? Why should I depend so much on God? Well, let's head back to the Mount of Olives and look at this second lesson that Jesus has to teach us that I hope will be helpful. And that's submission in prayer. Let's have a look again at verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. So Jesus enters the garden. He's left most of the 11 behind at this stage. And he's taken three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, right into the heart of the garden. And why does he only take three with them? Well, these men were Jesus' closest disciples, his closest allies, his closest friends. And he takes them all the way in, about a stone's throw away, so the disciples could probably hear him praying and what he's praying. But as they walk into the garden together, we see something happens to Jesus. 
Let's look at this account of the story from the book of Matthew for just a second. In Matthew 26, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain there and watch me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, I've I've underlined a few parts here, and I want you to notice something. As Jesus is walking into the garden, a sorrow overtakes him. He feels like he's about to die right there in that moment. What do we think Jesus is experiencing here? Well, Jesus himself is experiencing his own kind of temptation. It's a temptation that you and I will never be able to imagine. You see, throughout the scriptures, you and I are exhorted to flee from sin and to cling to God. We're told that temptation is crouching at the door, and so we must pray. But Jesus is eternally one with the Father. In Jesus' human form, we see him depart often and get alone to have time to pray. But in his divine form... He is never separated from God. But Jesus is feeling the weight of this separation coming. He isn't feeling sorrow because of, the, of, this, of sin overcoming him, the temptation of sin overcoming him. We know that Jesus was tempted in every way. That's why it says in Hebrews 4 that we have a sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses because he endured every temptation and did not sin. But Jesus was never in the conversation about being overcome by sin. That would be impossible for the divine human to do. Jesus isn't struggling with a sinful nature here like you and I would. You see, he's struggling with his holy nature. Jesus in the flesh is starting to experience something he has never experienced before, and that's separation from his father. For Jesus, this is like a death before death. He's getting a taste of the cross And his natural human inclination is to have sorrow and trepidation. And this is at the prospect of being severed from his father. You see, you and I struggle from fleeing sin. But in this moment, Jesus is fleeing sin-bearing. Let me tell you what I mean by that. By looking at the first line of his prayer in the next passage, Luke 22, 42. The first line of his prayer, he says, Father... If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. In the Old Testament, a reference to the cup would mean a reference to God's judgment or wrath. So when Jesus prays, remove this cup from me, he's really asking God, God, if there's any way that your plan of salvation for the world can happen without your cup of judgment falling on me. Please make it happen. The cup Jesus is about to drink contains the sins of the world. And he is meant to bear it. Sin bearing is Jesus' struggle in that moment. And rightly, he feels sorrow over it. He in great distress, he's in great distress over bearing the sins of the world. He knows that it's coming. And this passage says, like we said earlier, he was so stressed that his sweat came like great drops of blood. 
Now, people will ask, well, is this actually drops of blood coming down from Jesus or is it just sweat? Well, there is a medical condition called hematohydrosis. And it is a condition in which your capillary blood vessels that are attached to your sweat glands can rupture and causing them to actually sweat blood. And this, is, this only occurs under extreme, extreme conditions of physical or mental stress. It's a rare condition, but it's possible. And since the author of the book, Luke, is a medical doctor, there might be something to this. But whether or not it was blood, it's important to see that Jesus is intense in sorrow before his father. Christians often get this wrong. We tend to think that if there's some issue or some struggle that comes upon us, that we should just be happy and smiling because we have Jesus, right? I've had the unfortunate experience of many times over the course of my life dealing with clinical depression and anxiety. And I remember one time there was a Christian doctor that I went to who also knew that I was a Christian. I was explaining to him that I had these symptoms of depression. And he stopped. And I remember him asking me, he's like, okay, I know you're a Christian though. So do you actually know Jesus? Are you actually saved? Why are you experiencing this? I mean, if you follow, I'm so grateful in that moment that I actually read my Bible, (laughs) right? Because if you follow this train of thinking, that Christians should only experience nothing but happiness in life then you're leaving out the most glaring and the most perfect example of who Christians should look like. Jesus. Now, what does Jesus look like here in the garden? Is he happy? Is he healthy? No. Now, was Jesus always like this? No. So just quickly, if you're someone in here that only ever experiences pain or depression or anxiety, then know that that is not normal. And you should be seeking and receiving help from medical professionals, those closest to you, and and importantly, seeking prayer support from your church family. But if you're someone that never experiences pain or struggle or hurt or emotional stress, that's not normal either. Maybe you've become too isolated from those closest to you to be able to connect or show those emotions to others. Maybe there's a fear that if you let your guard down for just a second, there'll be a flood that comes. In both circumstances, Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. Jesus has experienced glory beyond any glory you and I will ever have and pain beyond any pain we will ever endure. And so if Jesus is the perfect picture of mental, physical, spiritual health, then we really do have a great high priest who can empathize with us in our weakness. And he's called us to pray. Let's look at the second half of Jesus' prayer in verse 41. It says, And Jesus withdrew from about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus asks for this cup to be removed from him. And I don't want to spoil it from you, but it isn't removed from him. This might be one of the only times in the Bible where Jesus' prayer to God is not answered with a yes. And in the Matthew account of this story, Jesus makes this request three times 
in the garden. Three times he's given a no. Does that give you encouragement to pray? If your prayers aren't answered, it's okay. Jesus had some prayers that weren't answered either. And yet he continued to pray and trust God. But let's look at the important part of the prayer that was answered. Remember he said, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, God, but yours be done. Look at how Jesus shows both his humanity and his divinity in a single prayer. In his humanity, it's totally right and good for him to respond to the impending cup of judgment and sorrow with sorrow and trepidation. He does not want to be separated from his father. Nevertheless, he knows that the ultimate good from his eternal divine connection to the father is what? To submit to his will. Now, submission is a term that we don't like to hear much. But the fact of the matter is, we, we all live under submission. Do any of you have a boss? Any of you have clients? Any of you have, have experienced a test coming up? Any of you married? Any of you had parents? <laughs> We're constantly living under submission to the people in our life every day. Sometimes it can feel like a burden, but sometimes... It can be liberating. You know when submission is easy? Submission is easy when you have a sacrificial, loving husband or wife that asks a lot of you, but it's a joy to serve. Submission is easy when you have a boss that's really interested in you and in developing you as an employee and as a person. Submission can be easy when you have clients that expect a lot from you but show you lots of grace. But you know when submission is hard? Well, I probably don't have to tell you. Submission's hard in lots of ways. But let's, let's spare a thought for Jesus in this moment. He's been fully aware every day of his life that this day is coming, this day of judgment. And every fiber of his humanity is being tempted not to take on the sins of the world. It's a kind of temptation you and I will never know. And in the midst of that, he's thinking about you and me. He's thinking about the weight of sin on our lives. He's thinking about how that can crush us unless he goes to the cross. And in that moment, he submits his will to the will of the Father for you and me. Friends, let me implore you that when you get to know Jesus, the God-man who's willing to die for you, submitting to his will is easy. Does that mean that your life circumstances are always going to be great? No way. But it does mean that you've submitted your life to the one who is constantly there for you. It's the one who is, he is the one who is before all things and who holds all things together. So submission in prayer is not just saying, God, your ways are higher than my ways, although that is true. It's saying, God, help me align my will to your will. So when we are submissive in prayer, we're aligning God's will to our will. And when we're expectant in prayer, we're knowing that we need our Father in heaven. And if we do both of those things, then we get to experience, as Jesus does, this final point, And that is victory in prayer. 
Let's look at our final passages, starting in verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus rose from prayer. His time of focused, intentional prayer with his father had ended. And this is a very significant moment. Because you notice when Jesus rises, he goes straight to his disciples who were sleeping. His three best buddies asleep on the job. They had one job, stay awake. <laughs> and they fell asleep. But Jesus asked his disciples three times to stay awake. But they couldn't muster the strength. And yet they were still his friends. Notice that, friends. If you fall asleep during prayer, it's okay. <laughs> Jesus has been there and he still loves you. But Jesus has found the strength to rise from prayer and engage his friends. And it's in that moment that Jesus tells his disciples something we saw that he prayed at the Last Supper. Both Matthew and Mark's Gospels say that the words that he first said to his disciples is, the hour has come, rise and pray. The hour has come. Jesus has poured out his heart before the Father. He's endured the temptation of not wanting to be separated from him. And he's heard this answer to his prayer, no, three times. And now Jesus rises victorious from prayer. Why? Because he's ready to face the betrayal of one of his disciples, the beatings from the Roman officials, and the brutality of this crucifixion. Now you could say, how on earth is that victorious? Well, Jesus isn't victorious because he escaped the cross. He's victorious because he experienced intimacy with his father, wrestling with his father. And yet he's able to come out of that, trusting God's will and plan for his life. That's victory. Is there, an, is, is, there must be an area in your life where you're battling to trust God. Well, guess what? Jesus has been there. Are you having a difficult time seeing your way through a situation in life or in the life of someone that you love? Friends, Jesus has walked through every temptation. And it's Jesus who is praying for you and them right now, fully and completely in the presence of his heavenly Father. Not because he escaped the cross, but because he endured the cross and he died for us and three days later rose victoriously over sin and death. Jesus destroyed sin and death forever, praise God, when his father rose him from the dead. And now he stands in victory, whispering your prayers into his father's ear, desiring you to have a closer relationship with him. So what does victory in prayer look like? Well, it doesn't always look like your circumstances are turning out for the better, but it can. Victory looks like resolving to make prayer a regular rhythm of your life in 2023. Victory in prayer looks like taking the steps that you need to wage war against the sin in your life. Victory looks like praying for that friend who has been diagnosed with a critical illness and trusting that God might heal them. Victory looks like stepping out in courage to share your faith with an unbeliever, knowing that the gospel is powerful to save. Victory looks like expecting that temptation is coming 
and submitting your life to find freedom in God by prayer. And every prayer that you pray is an act of war against an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy your joy. So to end our time today, we're going to take a few moments to offer our prayers to God. And we're going to allow God's presence to speak to us in the three ways that we've been talking about this morning. It's three ways that Jesus shows his power in prayer from his time in the garden. These postures that he had, his expectation in prayer, his submission in prayer, and his victory in prayer. So I want to lead us through a few brief moments in prayer. You might like to close your eyes as we do this. You maybe might like, as I do sometimes, to open up your hands to just receive God's presence. And our first prayer is going to be a prayer of expectation. So I want you to pause on your own, there in your seat, and offer up to God any temptation or difficulty, any stressor or anxiety that's on your mind in this moment. Let's assume a posture of submission in prayer. Just take a moment to talk honestly with God right now about where you are in submitting to his rule and reign in your life. finally, let's assume a posture of victory in prayer. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to trust him. Let's talk to him. God, help me to trust you with my life, even if that is for the very first time today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.